Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this season 10 ender of Word, and back by popular demand, it's another Fest of Us. Oh, wow, that's awesome. As we prepare to jump into 2024, we're going to rekindle our celebratory theme from last year by presenting some highlights from seasons 9 and 10 around a digital campfire, so to speak, which we hope you'll find cozy this time of year. Plus, we have the winners of our tiny library drawing, which we conducted this month. There was both the kids and adults category, and we received 365 entries. Thanks to everyone who entered. First up is a snippet with Daniel Suarez, whose sci-fi novel Critical Mass is a thriller about a space rescue mission that faces insurmountable odds. He was part of Season 9, Episode 1, which launched in February. When we started the convo, I wanted to know how he developed an interest in sci-fi. What got me into it was uh, my first book, Damon, self-published in 2006. I wrote it out of concern sort of about the monocultures of the modern world and these single points of failure that we were building into our society. And ever since then, I think what I've been focused on, both personally and professionally, sort of the consequences of rapid technological change, you know, how that changes society and how that affects human agency. I mean, this has always fascinated me. I worked for about 17 years in software development. I had a consulting firm designing systems for big companies, and that's where those concerns came from. Well, I guess I'm thankful, uh, at least from my perspective, that you had those concerns because I think technologists <laughs> do not always... It's the Frankenstein story in some regards, right? You have a new sci-fi thriller out. It's called Critical Mass. And I was at least partially curious if maybe just in passing you drew any inspiration from the 2011 novel The Martian by Andy Weir. Of course, that was made into a really popular movie starring Matt Damon, same title. Did that interest you at all? Well, of course it interested me. And, and of course, I've met Andy. As a matter of fact, he was, uh, he was promoting that book and we were over at Fox when I was doing Influx over there. So fan of the book, a fan of his work. Um, it's sort of like saying um, you wrote a, a book about the ocean. Uh, you know, it is a huge, huge subject space. And I think if there is a difference, and there's a major difference between these two stories, because, of course, critical mass also involves a rescue in space, although it is set from the perspective of the, of the people doing the rescuing, not so much from the rescuers. And it is also as much about rescuing civilization on Earth. So there is some question about who's rescuing whom. So there are other subtle differences. And it's, it's about big issues of economics and politics and climate change and so forth. So sure, uh, always inspired by good stories about space. I think really where I was focusing with uh, this book and, and the book previous to it was so often in science fiction, the the matter of humans being settled in space and expanding and having uh, cities in space is already solved. We, we're already out into the universe and in the solar system. And I always wondered, well, exactly how do we achieve that? Because I don't think it's a given. Right. I mean, we are, we are facing very serious uh, existential crisis in terms of climate change. 
but also in terms of economics, uh, the rise of authoritarianism and increasing conflict, all of these things, and they could prevent our ability to go into space. So I really wanted to write a series in Critical Mass, it's the latest in that, that depicts precisely how we can do it, how we can reach that more positive future that we always imagine in sci-fi. I didn't, I didn't want there to be any, any hand-waving, so I did a great deal of research to make sure that the story that I'm telling is rooted you know, firmly in reality, in technology that is, that is being developed and prototyped today. And I spoke to all sorts of uh, entrepreneurs in space. I spoke to billionaires. I spoke to NASA people, scientists, to try to boil down a story that could really happen and not 50 years from now, but now. Well, and it centers on a different type of rescue, as you mentioned. And I wondered if you could just set that up for us briefly. It deals sure. with an asteroid, right? Yes, it, it deals with the asteroid Ryugu, which uh, the Hayabusa 2 mission reached uh, back in uh, 2021 and is returning a sample. So the first book, and this is the second book in the series, Critical Mass, although it can be read standalone, both, both of the books, Delta V and Critical Mass, are intended to be able to be read standalone. But that is the story of a commercial asteroid mining expedition that goes to Ryugu and returns resources. And critical mass is set at the point where they've returned these resources. And they need to use these resources to try to rescue colleagues they left behind at this near-Earth asteroid Ryugu. And they need to be ready to do that rescue in time for the asteroid's next close approach to Earth. And the issue is that there's a new Cold War on. This is set in the 2030s. And with competition in, in space and billionaires vying for control, it's a question of who's going to have control of these resources. So it's really who has control in space, you know, what value system are we bringing to space, all of these big questions. Well, and I would use the term, uh, dear repeat it, rip from the headlines, because I think there are people that refer to what's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now as Cold War II. Others yep. have said World War III, but I think that's kind of caustic, not trying to minimize what's going on, of course. And not too helpful, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I guess others would think in terms of where we're putting our resources, they may have a question of, we have so many problems right here on our own planet. Why are we so busy trying to get off this planet? Yeah, and that, that I think is a real important question. And that's one of the issues I really want to get to the heart of in these stories, in Critical Mass in particular, is that I think going into space is going to be critical in trying to preserve civilization and life here on Earth. Not only that, in trying to provide economic opportunity for billions and billions of people. Well, from sci-fi to poetry... Regular listeners of Word know that every February kicks off a new season and also KJZZ's annual haiku writing contest. On episode three of season nine, we crowned our winner, Jamie Galloway from Santan Valley, Arizona. Hello. Hi, this is Tom Maxidon from KJZZ in Phoenix. I'm trying to reach Jamie Galloway. Hi, this is Jamie Galloway. Hi, Jamie. I just wanted to let you know that you are the winner of the KJZZ Haiku Writing Contest. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Do you happen to have the poem that you could read for us? You know what? I actually submitted two of them. I okay. thought you could do uh, like one a week or something. So I did two. So I'm not sure which one won. So the haiku that we chose randomly was Dormancy Reset. I think I just submitted that 
two days ago. Oh, outstanding. Yeah. There's nothing like coming in under the wire, as it were, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> Dormancy reset. Defrosting a year of ice joints and sunless gloom, sweet gardenias bloom. That's a beautiful poem. And of course, our topic was something you wanted to reset in your life. Are you a gardener by chance? And is that something you want to do more of? I am, yes. I have been planting a little garden out in my backyard and just waiting for warmer days so things can start blooming again. Thanks to everyone who entered the contest, and congratulations once again to Jamie. And thanks for celebrating another Fest of Us. Coming up, more highlights from 2023. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature. Looking for a new podcast? KJZZ has original podcasts on all sorts of topics, like the new series called Period The End. It's a series about a chapter of life that can be gut-wrenching, exhausting, and confusing. It's about menopause, and half the nation will go through it. You can download great storytelling at podcasts.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts. KJZZ's mission relies on your ongoing support to be here day after day delivering the news, information, and entertainment throughout Phoenix and Arizona. Can we rely on you? Donate today at KJZZ.org. Your mornings can define the rest of your entire day. Find the $5 you forgot about in your pocket. That might be a good day get stuck in a traffic mess on the 51 probably going to be a bad one but when you begin your day with morning edition you start fully awake with the latest and most important news to prepare you for whatever comes next take control of your day and listen to morning edition from 5 until 9 on kjzz 91.5 welcome back to word i'm tom maxidon like many we take our annual spring break in march only to return with more verse, celebrating National Poetry Month in April. On Season 9, Episode 4, we featured the Arizona winner of Poetry Out Loud. That's a national arts education program and poetry recitation contest in which high school students compete against each other in their states, and when a winner is crowned, they go on to the nationals in Washington, D.C. Here's a snippet of our convo with Baruni Hariati from the Valley, which started with her acknowledgement of when her attachment to poetry began. I think I first met poetry probably in first grade when we had a unit in our English class about poetry. And I think right off the bat, it, it was just something that interested me a lot because, I mean, I've always loved writing. When I first started writing, I wrote a lot of short stories and that was something that was really fun for me. I loved like crafting a narrative, even if the narrative was super formulaic and not very um, high quality or complex. It was just something that I loved a lot to be able to tell a story in my own words. And when we started the poetry unit, I think I found that poetry offers a lot of freedom. I mean, when you write in prose, there are certain standards that you're expected to adhere to in terms of like grammar and punctuation. Right. And even just paragraphs. Meanwhile, in poetry, it's not necessarily that you have to throw them all to the wind, but you can engage with those standards as much or as little as you want. And sort of through how much you engage and indulge in um, the things like line breaks, um, punctuation, it sort of helps with how you deliver your message. 
I love how you describe that you met poetry as if poetry was a person and not just a thing. I really believe that that description helps to see it as a function of humanity. After all, writing is part of the humanities. I want to talk about the competition specifically. How many qualifying rounds were there prior to the state finals competition? And can you tell us a little bit about how the contest works? The idea is you start from the classroom level. So you have competitions within your class. And then from there, you go to the school level, from school, regional, regional to state, state to nationals. It's a poetry recitation contest. And I think a misconception that some people have when I say poetry out loud is they think that I'm reciting my own poetry. Yes, um, which, point. Yeah, which is not the case. I'm reciting other poets' poetry. It's from an anthology online. And within my school contest, I had to recite two different poems and regionals, two different poems again. And at state, I recited three poems. Can you recap the poems that you chose, at least for the finals, and what motivated you to choose those particular entries? The first poem that I recited was Mr. Darcy by Victoria Chang. And this one is my favorite poem because Victoria Chang, I'd never heard of her before uh, starting Poetry Out Loud, but she has this amazing, amazing style that is so incredibly clever. And in Mr. Darcy, what she kind of talks about is this idea of marriage and property and how those two are married in a sense, in that oftentimes, and especially for a woman, marriage is seen as a way to move upwards in society rather than a thing that comes out of love. So she kind of plays with this idea that even though this whole patriarchy is being something outdated, it's still very much something that's present today. And my second poem was The Wish by a Young Lady by Letitia Pilkington. When I happened upon this poem, it felt very fresh and new, and it didn't at all feel dated like some of the other older poems did. And in it, Letitia Pilkington talks sort of about the idea that, again, it's kind of commentary on the patriarchy. So that was my second poem. I'm sensing um, kind of a theme here. I want to go back to something yeah. that you said, though. Is it the structure of the poem itself? Is it that the language may not seem as erudite? What is it that makes you feel that something from that long ago is, apart from the theme, uh, what you just described, is relevant for today? I think one of the aspects is honestly that it's a really short poem and it's only eight lines. So even if the language does feel a little bit odd, it all just goes by in a flash and you don't really have time to get lost in it. And second, I think that it sort of feels like it has a lot of attitude, at least in the way that I interpreted it, in the way that I delivered her poem. I felt that it was kind of this, she was trying to talk about this feeling of despair, but also in sort of a mocking sense. To me, it just felt very modern and fresh and fun. And what was the third poem that you chose? The third poem was not completely in line with the whole theme of the first two. It was called, <laughs> it's called Mimesis, um, and it's by Fadi Judah. And it is a wonderful poem. It's also pretty short. Mimesis, if I remember correctly, um, I think uh, it refers to the idea of art reflecting a concept in real life. In the poem, Fadi Judah, he says, my daughter wouldn't hurt a spider. And how even when he told his daughter, if you move the spider web that's between your bicycle handles, well, then you can ride your bike around and you can have fun. And the spider will just know that it shouldn't come back there because you just brushed it off, right? And the way his daughter responds is, that's how others become refugees. 
isn't it? Congrats once again to the state winner, Baruni Hariati, unfortunately fell just a bit short in the Nationals. Well, past the midpoint of Season 9, we welcomed NPR's All Things Considered co-host, Mary Louise Kelly, on Episode 5. She had just released her memoir, It Goes So Fast, a book about balancing life and her career. Here's a throwback to some of our time we spent, which began by Kelly answering why she wanted to write a true story on the heels of two novels. I will answer that by sharing the quote that I kick off the book with, which is from the great writer Toni Morrison, who said something to the effect of, if there's a book you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, then you should write it. And I'm a writer, and I found myself really, really wrestling with the balance, the juggle, the work-life balance, the leaning in, the leaning out, you know, whatever you want to call it, which I thought all of it was going to get easier as my kids got older. And I was, to my surprise, finding that I was finding it harder as they became teenagers. And then as my oldest was about to be a senior in high school, and I was staring down the last year that I could guarantee he was ever going to live under the same roof as me. And it brought up all these emotions and had me thinking hard on choices that I had made over the years, uh, trade-offs that I'd made to try to show up for my work and show up as a mom. And sometimes that all works beautifully. <laughs> and then there are many days where it's not and all the balls get dropped at once. I was really struck by the title because I am a creative writer in addition to what I do with respect to journalism. Yep. It goes so fast, punctuated by periods in between those words. That was my brilliant editor who said, should we put periods in between just for emphasis? And I thought, I mean, you're a publisher if you think that. And I, and I actually am so glad we did. Yeah, because it forces a reader to stop, and it just struck me as a memento mori, a remembrance that we all eventually pass on from life, and you take each word in. It came about because of a conversation. Um, People who listen to All Things Considered may have heard me in many an interview that is live saying to my guest, okay, in in the time we have left, or just a few seconds left, Senator, or, you know, in in the minute we have to go, and I'm trying to telegraph on air to them, like, you know, this is not the moment to launch into your 17-point deficit (laughs) reduction plan. (laughs) Like, pick your top point, and that's what we got. Um, But I'm also signaling to all of you who are listening, um, I'm not being rude if I jump in, you know, in a few seconds from now and cut this person off. I have no wiggle room. Um, I got to land this plane. So I'm trying to be transparent about doing all that. And I, I do think about, you know, i I'm so transparent and so conscious of it in my work. I had been less conscious of it in my personal life and my family life that that time was rushing past really quickly, too. And suddenly it became apparent to me that I had this deadline at home. I wanted to read a passage, if you don't mind. Please. What I think will give future octogenarian me pause is not the big decisions, but the accretion of all the many, many small ones. None of them seemingly significant in the moment. All those weekday soccer games when I showed up late or failed to make it all together. The playdates I skipped. The pool parties that I missed. The school pickups. The chance to hear all the chatter from the back seat. 
the morning baking cookies when it was the nanny in the kitchen instead of me. And you go on to lament that fact afterward. Yeah. It's in a chapter called The Helicopter. What is that title reference? The Helicopter references one of the big dramatic moments, um, which the, the very short version of which was I was on assignment in Baghdad and uh, running to get into a helicopter that was going to take us to our next round of interviews. And um, a nurse called from my son's preschool back in Washington to tell me he was sick, like really sick, and how quickly could I get back to get him. And um, I'm trying to answer her and trying to sort the logistics of that when the line went dead. Like I lost the call and I couldn't get her back. Um, Cell service failed. You know, this is more than a decade ago in in Iraq. And I had to get in this helicopter and take off. And I, it was a few hours before I was able to get cell phone service again and find out that he was okay. And I just remember sitting in that helicopter looking down over Baghdad and thinking, what the hell am I doing? (laughs) I love my job and I worked really hard to get here. But my son needs me, and I am thousands of miles away, and I can't get to him, and I can't even tell if he's okay. And I was assigned that night to sleep in this trailer parked behind one of Saddam Hussein's old palaces in a triple bunk bed, and I just remember making my deadline and then crawling into that bunk bed and crying and thinking, right now, I need to make a different choice. And I started writing what became my first book on the flight home back to Andrews Air Force Base. And not long after, quit my job at NPR. And I, um, I wrote books, and I loved it, and I still love it. And it's a totally different challenge from my day job in uh, Deadline News. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for this book, Mary Louise. Thank you, Tom, for having me on. This was a pleasure. Thanks for celebrating another Fest of Us. Coming up, more highlights from 2023. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature. Spot 127, KJZZ's Youth Media Center, trains high school students in digital production skills. By participating in Arizona's tax credit program, you can reduce your 2023 Arizona taxes and help Valley kids gain valuable skills. Find out more at spot127.org. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ. With true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. My name is Ryan Lee. I think Hotspots is really cool that it was a tiny little curated list every week of just what's going on. I kind of discovered it at a time when I was looking around at what to do in the Phoenix area. Sign up for KJZZ's Hotspots, and once a week, we'll send you fun ideas for what to do when the weekend gets here. Visit hotspots.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Season 10 began with a bilingual children's book from Tucson-based Ronnie Cappen Rivera Ashford. Raulito is the life story of Arizona's first and only Latino governor. 
and was chosen by the Arizona State Library's Center for the Book to represent the state on the Great Reads from Great Places list for the 2023 National Book Festival of the Library of Congress. The inspiration for Rivera Ashford's biography came to her in an interesting way. I was fortunate to meet him when he was 96 and living in my my hometown of Nogales, Arizona, on the border, where that's where I grew up, and that's where he chose to retire and live the last 25 years of his life because he felt no he loved the board living on the border and he felt Nogales was a very friendly border town and that's why he moved there. So when I got to meet him, uh, it was because I wanted to gift him my first two books that were published at that point. Uh, my Nana's Remedies, Los Remedios de Mi Nana, and Hip Hip Hooray, It's Monsoon Day, Ajua Ya Llego El Chubasco, and I figured he would enjoy the bilingualism of the books and the culture and traditions that are shared in the books, as well as the artwork. So when I gifted those to him, he called me a week later and asked me if I would come back to visit him because he wanted to give me a gift. And he also told me how touched he was by these books because the culture in them reminded him of his childhood. When I came to visit him, he gifted me a book that I didn't know existed, which was an autobiography that he co-wrote with a friend of his. And the title of that book, it's Adversity is My Angel, is the title of his autobiography. And that's where the inspiration came for me. When I met him, I did not have any thoughts about writing a book about his life. But once I started reading his story, it touched me so deeply that I actually had a dream about it. That's what I was going to ask is, you know, by interviewing him and talking to him and learning more about him, how much you identified with what he went through and maybe some of your own upbringing. I identified greatly with all of it and, or a lot of it, I should say. I'm not an attorney or a judge or an ambassador, but. Or a boxer. um, I guess I could say I'm an ambassador of education and bilingualism and aspects that, that are so rich from growing up on the border. And so when I had this dream, I don't remember my dreams often very clearly. And that the next morning I woke up and it was very clear because it just was going round and round in my head. Raulito becomes the governor. And right then I knew that I was meant to write a children's book about his life. Raulito, the first Latino governor of Arizona. It's a bilingual flip book and it's an award winner. Ronnie, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us. Thank you, Tom, so much. And I hope everyone out there will realize that a gift of a book is a gift you can open over and over again. So enjoy. Well, from children to a definite adult tale, season 10, episode 3, highlighted a new murder satire tying into some of our Halloween-oriented offerings. Chuck Polinick joined me in studio prior to an author appearance to discuss his latest novel, Not Forever, But For Now. 
The book satirizes the cozy style of mysteries and centers on two young boys who are part of a murderous family which are responsible for some of the most notorious crimes in history. It's told in the British idiom. A couple winters ago, I bought a whole stack of cozy mysteries. Do you know what those are? These are softer mysteries? Is that a way to describe it? It doesn't get any softer. These are mysteries in which someone is butchered in an English country town, and suddenly some very unlikely detective like a Miss Marple has to solve the mystery. It is the most sort of little old lady mystery, and they're enormously popular. And I thought I would try to write one, so I read a stack of these while it was snowing, and I hated them all. (laughs) But I wanted to adopt all of the conventions of the cozy and then write something really outlandish. You spin Murder, She Wrote with Angela Lansbury on its head, right? That is exactly what a cozy is. (laughs) Your imagery is so rich in your writing two senses that I think you really appealed to, certainly visual firstly, but olfactory as well, which is not very common often in writing. You know, since I began writing, um, smells have been really big because they are such a way of not just evoking memory, but they're also a way of getting in under the radar and verbs get in under the radar. People are kind of hypnotized by verbs and by smells. And so I try to use them constantly. I try to avoid dialogue because if you look at studies, very, very little is actually communicated through dialogue. So I use everything else. Tell me more about that. I'm not aware. Years ago, a reader sent me a clipping from the, uh, I believe it was UCLA. It was a big study that seemed to prove that of everything communicated between people in conversation, 87% of it was not said in words. It was body language, expression, it was tone of voice, it was volume. But really, maybe 13% was actually communicated through the words themselves. The book starts out in the opening scene with the two main characters, Otto and Cecil, who narrates the story. And they're watching a nature documentary that's voiced by Sir Attenborough. And of course, most people see that name, they hear the voice, which you describe, was whispering off to the side. But certainly the presentation of him is counterintuitive <laughs> to what some might think of him as he's narrating this documentary. Where did you come up with that? You know, growing up, those documentaries were just so ubiquitous everywhere on television. And we were latchkey kids, so you got home from school and you just turned the TV on and... It was on until mom and dad came home. And there was always a sequence in which a baby animal was going to be menaced by a bunch of predators. And as a child, to watch an animal child try to hide or escape or eventually be destroyed right there in front of you was enormously upsetting. And our hearts would be in our throats. And I wanted to revisit that because I don't have kids, so I don't get to revisit my developmental stages as I watch my kids. I have to constantly be looking at the world and trying to revisit those things I decided and those things that that really made an impression on me. The description that you utilized at the outset, it makes an impression on a lot of people because Attenborough is narrating the birth of a baby Joey and its climb toward its mother's pouch. And I have seen that documentary And I got to say, it affected me in the same way. 
you know, it's kind of like a car crash. When people go by, they crane their neck at it. We, as humans, are attracted to that. And you sort of pick up on this, oh, well, you know, this is nature. Everything's beautiful in nature. And this is why we have this documentary. But it's often not so beautiful. <laughs> you know, I I wouldn't remember it if it wasn't incredibly stressful and um, fascinating to watch. You know, there seemed to be so much at stake. And for little kids who are so worried about how they themselves are going to try to make it to adulthood, to see this tiny creature climbing the fur and possibly dropping off and just dying in the dirt, uh, that's what I wanted. I want to pick up on some quotes that really stood out to me. You talk about a law of ever-diminishing margin of returns weaved into this predator-prey metaphor that continues throughout the book. That really stuck out to me. But then also, you deal a lot with notions of outdated modes of the past being still sort of omnipresent, particularly when you're talking about this murderous family who's upper crust taking out the little guy. In a way, it's Cecil is a younger brother uh, who just adores his older brother because metaphorically, I wanted to write about how Americans just adore Great Britain and that kind of warts and all way. And when Downton Abbey is on, we are just glued to our sets so we can watch someone iron sheets. <laughs> Why is that? Because you're exactly right. I mean, like, often a lot of us are obsessed by the royals. You know, it's, it might, I'm just going to Heidegger it. It's, it's, it's a thrownness. It's some, you know, possibly genetic cultural thrownness. And, and it might be something we'll never understand. Or it might just be that Great Britain is bound around longer. But I also wanted to write a novel about empire and how yes. we don't really recognize when we watch Upstairs, Downstairs, or Downton Abbey. We're watching a tiny, tiny number of people whose lives depend on the suffering uh, and the hardship of enormous numbers of people. And so that is kind of the underlying metaphor of the entire book. Right. This power of legacy and how the upper class get away often, literally with murder. And how these two little boys are resisting being pulled into taking their place in the empire. You also write, Our crude ancestors want to see us seize the reins of power. We are bright young things, and no bright young thing wants to squander his life as a custodian of the dead. God, that's beautiful. And they say this as they're burning down an enormous baronial manor house, because they are very actively at this point pushing back against this this legacy because if they accept a legacy, they're merely perpetuating this thing that they don't even want to be part of and their lives are over. But if they can destroy this thing, then they might have a chance at a real life. I love what I feel are overtones of Gothic vampirism, of course, Frankenstein, Jack the Ripper, but of gay men. You know, this book is Brideshead Revisited, two guys in a big house doing it. This book is We've Always Lived in the Castle, Eaten Things. This book is every Gothic novel I've ever loved. Well, Chuck, it's been great to catch up, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us. Tom, thank you very much. Thanks for celebrating another Festivus. Coming up, we have the winners of KJZZ's Tiny Library Drawing. 
I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature. It's back. Join us for the First Press Fine Wine Festival, Saturday, February 17th, at the historically charming Wrigley Mansion. Enjoy wines from California, Arizona, Washington, and Oregon. Don't miss your chance to buy specially priced early bird tickets on sale now at firstpressarizona.com. Hey, it's Tiara. On All Things Considered, from KJZZ News and NPR, we hit pause on the news cycle for you, so you can get a handle on what you need to know and why it matters. Listen every afternoon from 3 until 6, on air, online, and on your phone. Whether your business is new or deeply rooted, large or small, you can share what's great about it while supporting a vital community service, KJZZ. It's a fact that listeners trust and support companies that sponsor KJZZ, And by becoming a sponsor, you build a stronger connection to everyone in your community. Get connected today at SponsorKJZZ.org. In public radio, our mission is to be here for our listeners. And here can be anywhere. Your kitchen, the laundromat, out for a walk. Stream us live at KJZZ.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. This month, we wanted to add an additional holiday component to our December episodes by creating a tiny library drawing for kids and adult books written by some of the authors who appeared this year on episodes of Word. And it proved to spread a lot of hopeful cheer as we received 365 entries. On the 22nd, when we closed out the contest and randomly selected our winners, I was able to reach both by phone. Hello? Hi, this is Tom Maxidon from KJZZ. I'm trying to reach Donna Ives. That would be me. Donna, congratulations. You are a winner of our tiny library in the kids category. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. I have a little free library in front of my house that I curate and love to keep it full of books, particularly for kids. Well, that's outstanding. Are you from the Valley? I am in the Kierland area of Scottsdale, Phoenix. Congratulations to Donna, who's a retired school teacher. But we had some more kudos to pass on. Hello? Hi, this is Tom Maxidon from KJZZ. I'm trying to reach Josiah. Yes. Hey, Josiah, congratulations. You're one of the winners of the Tiny Library. Oh, thank you. You entered in the adult category, and so you're the random winner. How do you feel? I was not expecting this this morning. That's amazing. What do you do for a living, Josiah? Um, I'm currently a full-time student at ASU. Good luck to Josiah on his future academic endeavors as he continues his collegiate career. Thanks so much for listening to this new holiday tradition of word we call Fest of Us. And for celebrating our longevity at this point with an eye on the future as we hope to be back in 2024 with Season 11. Portions of this program have been nominated for Edward R. Murrow and Public Media Journalists Association Awards. It's made possible by the generous support from KJZZ members who give monthly sustaining contributions. If you haven't had a chance to do so yet, that's okay. Please consider a year-end gift of $10, $20, or maybe even $30 per month to sustain the quality non-biased news, information, and entertaining programming like Word that you've come to expect from KJZZ. But whatever is in your budget is the right amount. You can find the link of how to donate on our website and full episodes at word.kjzz.org.
I'm Tom Maxidon. Thanks so much for listening. Many bows go your way, and Happy New Year. Word. Word? Word. Was the word. Thanks for listening to Word, a KJZZ podcast about literature. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.